Hi, everyone. This is Anthony Diaz with The Pop Health Show. And this show is for anyone that has a strong passion for making people healthier in this world. And along those lines, I have on the show today, Dr. David Fagenbaum. So Dr. David Fagenbaum is at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. He's doing a lot. He's done a lot. But to recap, he's a physician scientist. He's a survivor. He's, an, he's the author of Chasing My Cure, which should sound familiar to, to people that are listening to this that are in healthcare. He's a keynote speaker. Uh, he's a rare disease advocate. He's serving right now as assistant professor of medicine for University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. <laughs> so, um, Dr. Fagenbaum, welcome to the show. Uh, great to have you. Thank you so much for having me on today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you for peeling off time to do this. I really appreciate your, your, um, what you've done and what you're doing. But teleport us back. Tell us where things started for you. I know you covered this in your book and you've mentioned your story a variety of times. There's some people listening that have not heard your story. So we'd love to hear about your background and what led you to become the person you are today. Sure. Maybe I'll go back to medical school. So I was a healthy third year medical student training to become an oncologist in memory of my mom who had passed away a few years before from cancer, oh, wow. planning to, to treat cancer patients in her memory. And mm. out of nowhere, I went from being totally healthy to experiencing multi-organ failure. I was in the exact same ICU that I had just been treating patients. I gained 70 pounds of fluid. My liver, my kidneys, my bone marrow completely shut down. I was out, I was out of consciousness for most of the day. I was so sick that after 11 weeks, my doctors actually told my family to say goodbye to me, and a priest came in and administered my last rites to me. So I've considered that moment way back in November of 2010 to be the start of my overtime, you know, a time when every second counts and time that I didn't think I would have. And so thankfully, right around the time that my last rites are read to me, I was finally diagnosed with this awful disease called idiopathic multicentric Castleman disease, where basically your immune system attacks your body's vital organs until they shut down and, and you die. And, but thankfully, my doctors treated me with really intense chemotherapy, which saved my life. Unfortunately, I would go on to have relapse after relapse after relapse. Um, but this was really just the beginning. Wow. Wow. So um, really interesting story. And sorry to you know hear about your mother. And, and sorry that you went through that experience. Obviously, what you're doing right now is very powerful. It's the culmination of you know, from those experiences and, and, you know, with any origin story, there's always, you know, that kind of hero's journey or point of pain. And then you're, you're doing something for the greater good and for, of being of service to others, which you've done a great commitment to doing. Um, and so, so that leads you, leads you, you know, kind of to the present. And, you know, that being said, I would love to hear a little bit about, you're seeing a lot in health these days. Tell me a little bit about some of the things that fascinate you in health right now. What has you, you know, super excited? Totally. And maybe before I share kind of what I'm excited about today, maybe I'll share a little bit more background to give kind of Absolutely. perspective for the listener for why I'm so excited about these new things today. So um, after spending six months hospitalized, most of that time in a critical condition, chemotherapy saving my life, wow. I was able to go back to med school and um, uh, back to kind of my original plan of treating patients in memory of my mom. 
And then I relapsed on the only drug in development for my disease, this, the one drug undergoing clinical trials. And that, for me, was really my lowest point. Though I had almost died three times previously, it was the moment when I realized that the only drug in development wasn't working for me that really changed everything for me. That was my lowest point, realizing there, was no more, there were no more promising leads, there were no more options, there was no more hope. And that's when I told my dad and my sisters and my girlfriend at the time that I would dedicate the rest of my life, however long that may be, to trying to identify a treatment and maybe one day a cure for the disease. Mm. I was just a medical student, and I, and I knew it was unlikely that I would actually make progress in time to help me. But I knew that if I didn't try, that, I, that there was no way it would happen. I, I knew that if I was hoping for a cure, if I was wishing for treatment, that if I didn't do it, that it wouldn't happen. So I turned that hope into action. And, and I got mm. involved. I created a foundation called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network. And then I also began conducting laboratory research. And we started making progress for Castleman's. And then I relapsed again. And I was wow. back in the hospital now for the fifth time, spent over a month hospitalized, almost died again. Um, thankfully, wow. chemo saved my life. But this time when I got out of the hospital, I'd been storing samples on myself in the weeks and the months leading up to that relapse. So I went back to those samples. I performed a series of experiments that led me to identify a drug that had never been used before for Castleman disease, but was developed 30 years ago for kidney transplantation. And based on my data, I thought that maybe it could work for me. So I actually mm. started testing it on myself. And it's now been over six years that I've been in remission on this drug. This drug literally no one had ever thought to try before, but saving my life. And now we've begun to share and spread this drug and give it to other Castleman disease patients. But what I'm really excited about today, to, to answer your question, is this concept of what's called drug repurposing. So taking mm. a drug approved for one thing and trying it in another disease. And the reason today it's so exciting is that for the first time ever, there are tools that can better understand what's going wrong in one patient or another patient. And based on what we figure out what's wrong in one patient's disease versus another, we can think about what drugs already exist that were developed 20, 30, 50 years ago that might actually be able to target that particular thing. So I'm a huge advocate for this concept of drug repurposing. You mentioned my book earlier, Chasing My Cure. One of the main reasons that I wrote it was to spread the word about this concept. There are 7,000 rare diseases, and 95% of them don't have a single FDA-approved drug. But for many of these rare diseases, like Castleman disease, there is a drug somewhere that could potentially have activity. We just need to, we need to connect the dots. Wow. Wow. Super powerful story. And I love, it's almost like, yeah, your jump up, your, your hope incident, you know, and making that commitment. Hearing yourself and for, you know, you know, paving the way for the future. Uh, tell me a little bit more about this repurposing concept. Like maybe, you know, uh, what are the, the fundamental principles of how, what's our, what should be our mental model for thinking about repurposing this repurposing concept? Uh, if you could break it down a little bit more. Sure. So, um, I'll go to, back to some of the numbers I mentioned before and then dive in deeper. So there's sure. 7,000 rare diseases that affect 30 million Americans. Got it. 95% of those 7,000 rare diseases do not have a single FDA approved therapy. Mm. However, there are 1,500 drugs that are approved for about 2,500 diseases. So you've got 1,500 drugs, they work for 2,500 diseases, then you have another 7,000 diseases that don't have anything. And so the concept of drug repurposing is that many of those 10,000 diseases that are known to affect humans have similar cell types 
are proteins, are signaling pathways. They have similar problems in common. So, you know, mm. one problem that causes one disease can also be a problem in another disease. And so a drug that targets that thing for one disease could actually be very effective for treating another disease. And so, mm -hmm. so the concept is to say, let's look across all these diseases. Let's start probing the diseases with the tools that exist today that didn't exist in the past to understand what's going on with this cell type or this communication line. And if there's something wrong with it, then is there a drug that's already approved? I don't care what disease it was approved for. A drug that was approved for another disease that happens to work on that cell type or that signaling pathway, and let's try it in this disease that doesn't have any options. And that's mm. what we've done to Alzheimer's disease, and we're really trying to, to push that forward and highlight it as an option for many other diseases because, unfortunately, there are very few incentives that exist. I mean, you ask about the model, and the model, it, it seems so straightforward, you know, people must be doing drug repurposing. You know, you've got a drug that's already approved, you've got diseases without any, but unfortunately there are really very few incentives for companies or researchers to say, amongst the things that are approved, you know, what else can they work on? And I think we as, as a society need to really advocate for creating incentives so that these things happen, that we actually figure out that drug A isn't just effective for disease A, but also for disease B. Wow. Dr. Fagenbaum, so, the, you know, if we look at this like like mathematicians then. Um, so is the tipping point, is it about the incentives or are there other factors or physics to solving this problem and having, you know, the ultimate repurposing and matching what else needs to happen or be in place or, you know, most of the stuff is psychology and, and incentives, right? But what are, you know, if you can redo the calculus behind making this a non-problem anymore, how would you design it? You know, what, what, what needs to change? Great question. So when I think about kind of the pros that exist right now, well, the pros are that if a drug is approved for something, then mm. you know that it's already safe. Um, it, it, you've achieved this threshold for the FDA. And you know that it's effective at doing something. So you have an idea for how it works. So now you say you've got a safe drug. You know how it works. So now you want to figure out what other diseases could it work in. And if you can figure out that the thing that, it, that this drug works in is also deficient or, or, or defective in another disease, then it seems like a very clear and linear connection. But I really think the problem here is, is as you were saying, they are incentives. The fact that drug companies, once you get a drug that's approved for one thing, doctors can prescribe it for a variety of things. And there is very little incentive, especially if you're talking about a rare disease, to do the work to, to run a large trial that might cost hundreds of millions of dollars mm. to then get it approved for a disease that affects, let's say, 100 people. Castleman's is, affects 5,000 patients each year in the U.S., so it's a rare disease, but it's not ultra rare. Um, mm -hmm. But there are many other rare diseases that truly are ultra rare. Where, um, where it's hard to justify spending millions and millions of dollars on a trial if you're not going to recoup the cost. So we have to figure out a way, and I'm a big proponent of a bill called the OPEN Act um, mm. that was close to passing a couple of years ago, but it's really been sitting on the Senate floor for a couple of years now. And the OPEN Act would make it so that if you are a drug company and you have a drug approved for a common disease and you pay all the money to, create, to, to run a trial to prove that it works in a rare disease, then you'll get six more months before your drug goes off patent. It extends your patent life for six more months. So that way you can make extra money in those six months to re recoup your costs. I like that. I like that. How's the receptivity of, the, of that change in, in, in incentive? Does he think it's, it, that's something? Um, I, I think that the math, the math seems like it, it, yeah. like it really would change 
Um, it really would be the right incentive. The problem is that in the current political climate, no one wants to do anything that could appear to be um, pro-pharma, even though at the end of the day, this really isn't a pro-pharma bill. It's really a pro-patient bill, right. but it does, it includes, rather than rather than leading with some sort, you know, this leads with an incentive. And so if you're leading with an incentive, right. then it can be interpreted as being pro-pharma as opposed to pro-patient. So, so I think that in the current climate, it's unlikely to pass. So we wow. as a society need to think through what else can we do to really encourage this? Mm, mm, I love it. I love it, Dr. Fagenbaum. And, um, you know, powerful experiences that you bring to the table. And it's interesting that, you know, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation, but more importantly, you probably wouldn't be thinking about this thought in this level of intricate detail. It's almost like you're, you're meant for this, right? Like problem solution uh, fit. And, you know, in your book, which, you know, upper right hand corner there, I see it there, uh, chasing my cure. Um, you know, you had to go through your own experience, you know, to get to this point. But I, I would also love to hear a little bit about some of the other things as we inch towards the future. What else are you wanting to see in place, needing to have in place? What do we as a society need in place when, you, when it comes to diseases? And obviously, you know, we're kicking off 2020. I'm not going to say the word coronavirus, but I'll say coronavirus. But there's, 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 there's flus, there's things, there's, there's rare diseases. Um, as we inch towards the future, as we think of, you know, diseases and as, as we think of, um, you know, viruses and things like that, what else are you passionate about wanting to have in place or usher, usher it in place? I'm just kind of curious. Yeah. So I, I think that another, so one area is, is drug repurposing. Another area that I'm really passionate about is ways to improve the way that research is done to make research in general more efficient. I was shocked as a medical student when I dove into the Castleman space to understand and to realize that researchers, physicians, they were, A, they were not collaborating with one another, and B, patients were not involved in the, in the research prioritization process. So mm -hmm. in rare diseases, you basically have to wait and hope that the right researcher comes along and applies for the right project at the right time with the right skill set. And unfortunately, that rarely lines up. And, and that's why only 5% of rare diseases have an FDA-approved drug, because mm. you're just waiting for the stars to align. What we really need to do as a society is to, is to create a system that's more efficient, where you only fund research that's been prioritized by the community, that let the crowd identify and prioritize research, and then go out and recruit the best people in the world to do that research. That's the approach that we take for Castleman disease. And we mm. found it to be incredibly fruitful. So, you know, one, I'm literally sitting here today because of a drug that I identified for myself in my lab, mm -hmm. but we also have identified additional candidate targets that we're pushing forward as a scientific community. The drug I'm on is only helping about one third of patients thus far in the trials and in the work that we've done to see if this drug helps other patients. So we've still got a lot of work to do for Castleman's, um, but we also, as a group, are, are very much focused on thinking about how do we share the learnings about our collaborative approach with other diseases? And, and I, I mentioned earlier that, that one of the reasons I wrote Chasing My Cure was for raising awareness about drug repurposing. It's about raising awareness about improving collaboration and research. But really, the, the main reason I wrote this book is because I learned so much about life and about living from almost dying five times right. less that, that I, I never learned before I went through all this and lessons that I don't want you or anyone else to have to go through all that I went through to learn them. And so these, for me, I feel like are so so fundamental to life, living in overtime, turning hope into action, creating mm -hmm. silver linings. These are things that, that, that 
I want to share with the world, and I'm just so thrilled to get the opportunity to, to chat with you today, to be able to share about these really critical principles in medicine, but also even beyond medicine. I love it. I love it. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it's through your story, and you've tr- truly, you know, been through that hero's journey, and um, I, I love the, the, the codification of, of hope and what, what you're putting forth you know, in this space, it's really fascinating. It actually just intrigues me more. I have like 17 more questions for you. I know we all have so much limited time. Uh, I'm wondering, is this is this like a, so to solve this problem properly, I mean, if all the, if it was properly crowdsourced, I guess, and you had the community, the nation, the world prioritizing these diseases, uh, and then you, you can align those with incentive. Is this a, is this a $5 billion problem to fix a billion dollar problem? Is it a, is it a, a $50 billion problem. I'm just kind of curious. I don't have any of that money right now, but um, I'm just kind of curious if, it, if if you align the incentives and you, and you did the simulations and you got it aligned to the right organizations. It's a great question. I think that um, I hope that it would be a, uh, you know, on the lower end of that. I think yeah. it's hard to know. I think, you know, what our experience in Castleman disease has been that We've only, and I'm going to use the word only, I don't know if that's right, but we've raised about $1.5 million for Mm -hmm. research. That $1.5 million of research has led to an additional $7 million of external funding. So Mm. the research did generate important data where other funders said that's really interesting and could be really meaningful. We're going to you know, put in funding. So really only about $8.5 million has gone into Castleman's research over the last eight years. Mm. And, and that money, so one and a half raised, another seven added in, that money has led to now two drugs that look extremely promising, one of which I'm literally alive because of. The other one is coming down the pipeline very soon after. And when you think about that compared to the previous 60 years, for Castleman disease. In the previous 60 years, there was one drug that ever underwent development. And now in the last eight years, we've got two. Um, and, you know, a lot less funding has gone into it. So I think that it shows that there are efficiencies that we can take advantage of, mm-hmm. that the crowd can truly be powerful. Um, and, and that, hey, every day, new drugs and new, new technology is coming out. But we have to harness it. We can't just kind of wait and hope that, you know, the right drug for the right patient, the right researcher, we need to be really, in my opinion, very systematic about how we connect the right drug to the right patient at the right time. I love it. I love it. Yeah, you got me thinking here, and I, I, it's just great to meet you, and I, it's great to hear your story. A uh, couple, you know, couple things I'd love to do is, you know, continue, obviously, conversations with you and, you know, figure things out and uh, have fun with this model, right? It would be great to support you. you you're my full support and I'm sure our Thank listeners you. as well. I think you're turning on our uh, to our listeners the, the the math, but the passion, but also you know we could be potentially right in the next ten to twenty years getting getting to some point that that we we solve a lot of these problems in the right way and align the incentives. But uh, Dr. Fagenbaum, um, as we're kind of getting towards the end of our in- interview here, um, you've been on the verge of death five times. You said right, and um, I can imagine you have some personal habits or philosophies and health that really work for you these days to keep your own engine going. Um, what are they? Do you have a special smoothie recipe or special meditation you do? What do you do to stay healthy and energized? So I think that for me, um, the, my, my kind of break in the day and where I do get my energy back is, um, when, when I go home, my, my wife and I have a year and a half old daughter, Amelia. And so when I come home from work, I shut off work and I'm just, fully present with Amelia. And that's been like the most amazing, you know, mental health gift of all time. And um, Mm. 
I really do feel like that just time with her, um, you know, every new, new parent, um, you know, gets this sort of, you know, feeling being around their, their, their child. But I, I do think there's something maybe, and every parent probably feels this way, maybe a little bit extra special where, you know, being where I've been saying goodbye to my family, really never believing that I would be able to, to see the next day. But now, you know, years later, having a family and having Amelia, um, I think I, I hold her a little bit longer than, than maybe I would have otherwise. I think that, yeah. you know, I, I look at her a little bit longer. I think that um, there is something really special that I, where I can appreciate. And, and I wish I didn't go through all the stuff that I went through. I wish my family right. didn't have to go through all that I went through. But given that we did, um, I love that we can appreciate life in ways that we never before. And I love that I can share some of these lessons with other people through my book. Amen. Amen. I love it. No, that uh, well said, well put. I'm right there with you too. I mean, just that connection with that love and, and, you know, sparking that caused you to have that type of love and connection in a way that you wouldn't have otherwise. And it's only through, right. That, that perfect love, right. That you can have like no fear to pursue what you're doing in turn, which a lot of people, otherwise, there's a lot of people in the world that are, that are trying to do a lot, trying yep. to change the world. They still have those little sparks and glimmers of fear and they're not experiencing that perfect love. Um, so it's interesting how life works, you know, full circle and just to stay, you know, in that, in that, in that mode of love and relentlessness, um, you know, which, which spurs it. Um, you have a book on Amazon. Um, anything else you'd like to share social media wise or if our listeners would get, like to get in contact with you or, or Anything else you would like to share if they'd like to reach out or uh, like you on Instagram and uh, tick, you know, I'm not sure if you're doing any TikTok dance challenges these days, but uh, what, how can our listeners get a hold of you? <laughs> so not on TikTok yet. Um, I imagine as Amelia gets older, she'll, she'll either tap me on it to, to surveil her right. or she'll be on herself. Uh, no, I think the best place for listeners to go would be to go to chasingmycure.com. There they can learn about the book. Also, the book's available anywhere books are sold. So your favorite uh, local bookstore, of course, it's also in Amazon, on Amazon. Um, but it's a place also to learn about this Castleman's journey. From mm. ChasingMyCure.com, you can learn about, there's a, a part of the website we call Chasing Cures, and it's all about how do we spread what we've done for Castleman disease to other disorders. Um, and, of course, for listeners to go to CDCN.org, um, where they can also learn about Castleman disease and the work that we're doing. I love it. I love it. Well, Dr. Fagenbaum, this was great. Love to have you back on every single year until we fix the problem, right? <laughs> or at least every, right. But, uh, but no, this was great having you on. It was really rewarding. You, you, you blew my mind with your journey and then how you've taken that and applying it to this bigger uh, problem on the planet Earth. So, um, so awesome work that you're doing. You know, you're, you know, you're in our full support. Um, to our listeners out there, this is the Pop Health Show. This show is for anyone that has a super strong passion for health, like Dr. Fagenbaugh <laughs> and all his uh, all his listeners. And uh, but check out his book and uh, Dr. Fagenbaugh. This is great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks Thank so you. much for having me. This is awesome. Absolutely, this was fun. Thank you so much. <laughs>